Thesis Criterium Nation, a show about life lived one corner at a time. I'm your host, Rob Kelly. If the coronavirus pandemic has taught us anything, it's the value of persistence, the value of not giving up, of being dogged in your approach to whatever it is that matters so much to you. When it comes down to our society and our community, we can't survive without each other. And where persistence and society meet is in the realm of helping one another. One thing that I've really noticed during the course of this pandemic is the value of having positive people around me. Or more importantly, the value of having people around me who are willing to not give up. Not give up on themselves, not give up on our friendships, not give up on me, not give up on our relationships. Where it becomes painful is when some people just move on or they isolate themselves away from the rest of the world and from, frankly, themselves. Today's guest on the show is Celine Oberholzer. This is the third week of The Future is All Right, our opening salvo for 2021, in which we've been focused on telling stories about those people who are new to the sport, or more importantly, the younger riders in the sport that will be leading us into the future well after many of us have hung up our cleats. Celine has a story that she needs to tell, and it's not an easy story, let's be honest. She had an eating disorder. And because of the eating disorder that she had, she suffered some pretty severe physical injuries. What saved her, what helped her, what allowed her to overcome that eating disorder and and return to a more healthy life is bike racing. But more importantly, it's the people who are a part of this community and the persistence of a great number of people and constantly reaching out to her. Even when she turned the help down, they continued to reach out to her. And that's what we need to do for ourselves and for everyone around us, is not give up. You may not get the response that you want the first time. You may not get the response you want the 300th time. But if it matters, you will continue to do it because that's the only way that we can. That is our way forward. We cannot give up on each other, and we cannot give up on ourselves. Before I put this together and buttoned it up here in, in the intro, I reached out to Kristen Arnold. You know, you may recall Kristen from being a guest on this show, but also she's a registered dietitian, nutritionist with Source Endurance, and I asked her for some advice on resources that you can look out to, you can reach out to, that you can read if you a loved one, somebody that you know, somebody that you care about is suffering from an eating disorder. There's two real good ones that she recommended online, eatingdisorderhope.com. They have a a call toll-free number, 1-855-783-2519. You know I'm from the 90s since I decided to say the one before the 855-783-2519. Or there's another national association, the nationaleatingdisorders.org website, NEDA. Both of them have resources that you can use. In fact, the NEDA also has a 1-800 number. 
800-931-2237 that you can call Monday through Thursday, 11 to 9 p.m. Eastern, Friday, 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern. There are resources out there. And if you need help, please go out there and get the help. We are here for you. We are here for all of us. We are a community of people who are passionate about bike racing, but more importantly, we're passionate about the people that are with us, which is why it's interesting that this particular show also features a special guest appearance from Celine's boyfriend, Connor. His appearance on the show was very much not planned, but it seemed to go so well with the rest of the message that I needed to keep it. And it's very much worth the awkwardness on my part of going off script. So please enjoy Connor's appearance and explaining what Connor is a goner, his Instagram handle actually means. While we're talking about Instagram, remember the show has its own Instagram and Twitter at Criterium Nation. Please follow along there. And follow along on the other shows here on the Wide Angle Podium network of shows. It is the world's only top-tier collection of independent cycling content. So you've got Cyclocross Radio, Nowhere Fast, The Consummate Athlete, The Slow Ride Podcast. You've got this great lineup of shows that are about community, about building friendships and building relationships across the great spectrum of this sport. Not just pointy road tires and things like that, but we got the knobby tires. We've got the Grodio for those who are interested in in trying out gravel road racing, something we talk about in this show. WideAnglePodium.com is the website. There is a membership button. Please consider becoming a member and helping support this show. But you can also help support this show by leaving us a review. Those reviews very much help this show get identified by the algorithms and get pushed out to the platforms so that others can find out about the work that we're doing. Well, a lot of prelude right there. No more from me. Let's get to Celine and let her pick it up from here. Okay, my name is Celine Oberholzer, and I race crits for Wolfpack and gravel for State Bicycle Company, and I'm from uh, San Marcos, Texas. San Marcos is your current residence, but it is by far not the only place in this great blue world that you've lived in. You are a veteran traveler. Yeah, basically, I was born in Geneva and lived in France for a couple years, and then Edmonton, Canada, and then Chicago, Illinois, Bloomington, Indiana, and then landed in San Marcos. So it's been a steady southern migration. <laughs> that explains why you have an accentue over the E in your first name, in Celine. Yeah. Which is something that I've come to learn how to use a keyboard to create both on the phone and on, you know, a standard keyboard. And it's amazing because my French is abysmal. <laughs> but now I know by virtue of talking to you the four or five different French accent marks and what they all mean. I will never try to pronounce them because, like I said, my French is abysmal. But you've because you've had all these different stops along the way in your journey to San Marcos and 
for those that don't know, where is San Marcos? Because it's 24 hours from one side of Texas to the other. So where in the great state of Texas is San Marcos? It is right in between San Antonio and Austin. So it's about 30 minutes in either direction. So you get the best of kind of all worlds when it comes down to bike racing in Texas. Yeah, it's pretty perfect because we get all the benefits of the cities around us in central Texas, but none. I, w- I shouldn't say none, but not as much of the traffic or stoplights and all that. Tell us about dance and the value that or the role that dance played in young Celine's life. Well, so I basically started dancing in first grade. Um, my older sister was enrolled in dance classes and my parents thought, wouldn't it be convenient if both my daughters had the same hobby? And I'm not going to lie, for the first couple years, I think I hated it. I vividly remember like crying in the car on the way there. Didn't want to wear like the tights and the leotard and put my hair in a tight bun. But then I think around fifth or sixth grade, I I think I started to understand dancing a little bit better. I kind of fell in love with it. I don't. <laughs> the high school I went to, um, Mean Girls, is based off of. So I had a lot of difficulty. I think growing up with like bullying in school, and so dance kind of became my safe haven, where I could go and just escape from everyday realities like mean classmates or teachers that were unsatisfied with my performance in class and whatnot. And I could really, yeah, just just escape from reality through dancing, which is kind of ironic because eventually that took a turn for the worse and dance was no longer an es- like a healthy escape. Let me stop you right there before we before we get to where it kind of deviates away from being a positive moment in your day and a thing that you would look forward to dance itself when you get down to it and you were at elite levels you were dancing with the the joffrey school in chicago which is one of the biggest uh, most impressive most well-renowned modern dance companies in in the midwest and probably the country of course i am biased being from chicago so you weren't just like the typical person dancing at a wedding. You were at a different level, right? Right. Yeah. And I think that started to happen between junior high and high school, where I realized I started, I guess, thinking more about what I wanted to do with my future. And I was also involved in some other extracurriculars. Like I was doing track and field and cross country and played the violin And I started kind of having to choose. I was being spread too thin, basically, and I had to choose. Basically, I chose dance over everything else because I realized I could see myself doing this professionally. And I think I'm a pretty extreme person and I get very passionate and involved in whatever I'm doing. And dance kind of drew me in because of that. And so I was able to picture myself doing it professionally. And so I started... At that point, my parents were no longer pushing me and I started pushing myself and I was like, this is what I want to do and I want to train in the most beneficial way possible. And so that's when I started going to summer programs. So I'd spend like a couple weeks at various programs and they're called like dance intensives. And so you'd basically 
be away from home for like six to nine weeks during the summer and you just train for <laughs> like, I don't know, probably 10 hours a day. Um, and most people, when they came home from summer programs, that was a big indicator as to whether or not they could do it professionally. Because if they were relieved to be home, they were like, yeah, probably not going to make it professionally. But I was always sad to come home. I was like, I want to keep doing this. And so in my mind, I was like, yeah, I could, I could see myself doing this for the rest of my life. This sport, cycling, that we are mm-hmm. partners in, I think it draws people like, like us. People who mm-hmm. have a somewhat obsessive personality when it comes down to detail, when it comes down to the thing that you're passionate about, because the story you're telling right now about dance could be the same story that a lot of bike racers could tell about something else in their life, too. So, for example, for me, I remember when I was a freshman in high school, I had to make the choice what sport I wanted to be good at. Did I want to continue to play soccer and football or soccer and baseball and swimming? And in fact, I had to make that decision basically on the first day of high school. And I said, I want to be a swimmer. And from that point on out, it was just like, nope, five hours a day, every day of the week, swimming is what you're going to do. And with you, you know, the, the journey is dance and I need to dispel any, any, any sort of I don't know, rumor or untruth. Dance is hard work. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when, it, when it comes down to it, if you do look at a dancer and look at his or her body, these are physical athletes. These are incredibly strong people. They run their bodies at like super high levels. I, I've been told never look at a ballet dancer's feet. You know, because they will beat the living crap out of their feet because of being on point and things like that. Did being a dancer and pushing yourself as an extreme athlete have negative consequences? Oh, I mean, absolutely. I think anyone who has pursued a career in dance has had in one form or another some negative consequences. And I think that's just in the nature of it. Like you said, it a, a lot of high-level sports attract obsessive people. And in dance in particular, all of your performance evaluations are subjective. So there aren't like power numbers that you can look at. For example, you're just standing in front of a mirror for 10 hours a day, and there's one person in the room who's the director and they judge whether or not you're good enough. And it doesn't matter whether you're having a great day or a bad day. The director can decide that you're just not good enough. And you can be pouring your heart and soul out in that room. And ultimately, it's up to one person whether or not you succeed. And it it doesn't even have to relate. <laughs> I think the worst part for me was that it's it can be completely unrelated to your performance. Like you could be the best dancer in the room, but if the director doesn't like brunettes, you're done. And that was the worst part for me because they also don't bother, like you're so replaceable that they don't bother to tell you why you were rejected if you were rejected. It's just like going to auditions, there'd be, I don't know, like a hundred girls in the room a handful of spots available. And if you don't make it, that's it. Like, end of story. There's no explanation. 
it could be that you weren't the right height that they were looking for or just like anything that's again like complete it could be completely impersonal but you would just never know how much of a relief is it for you to be in bike racing now which is way more objective there is clearly a winner a second place a third place you know are you relieved that that level of subjectivity is gone completely and i think that's ultimately what first drew me into bike racing because i was like there are so many metrics that I can evaluate my performance by. And it's not just power numbers. It could be like I rode 100 miles today. And that in and of itself is amazing. And then there's speed and like the wind that you were competing against and elevation gain and all of these different metrics. And I think that's pretty awesome. And usually in bike races, there's a reason something went wrong if you didn't win. It's like, I mean, maybe it came down to positioning. Maybe it came down to just mentally giving up before your body gave up. There's there's always an explanation, whether it's success or failure. And I think for me, mentally, that helps a lot. Since you brought mental up, we need to talk about something that you and I talked about a little bit before we started recording and, and obviously in our discussions that we've had prior to, to setting this up is kind of the mental impact or toll that dancing had on you. And it's not an easy conversation at all. Can you walk us through kind of the darkness that came with dancing towards the end of it? Yeah. So between, I think, sophomore year of high school and sophomore year of college, a lot happened with dance. And because it is so subjective and a lot of your I guess, success isn't in your own control. There were things that I found that I could control, like the number of calories I ate in a day, um, how much I weighed. And those were basically the only numbers that I could put any value on in dancing. And so I say that probably started sophomore year and it escalated mostly because I started being rewarded for how much lower those numbers got. So if I consumed less calories and my body weight was lower, my teachers started noticing me more. They started offering me better performance opportunities. And because I was being positively reinforced, I was like, okay, the lower those numbers are, the better my chances are in the dance world. And it was just that simple. And again, because I have like an, a pretty obsessive personality and I want to be the best version of, my, of myself at all times, that quickly became an association that I just, that was life or death for me, was having those numbers be as low as possible. And ultimately, like I'm not going to go into details, but of course that was unsustainable. And I started to get injured and that, I think my worst injuries were my senior year. And I had a contract with a contemporary dance company in Chicago out of high school, had plans to graduate early, had basically up until that point taken extra classes so that I could leave school early my senior year and go to Chicago to dance with Joffrey. And then I tore cartilage in one of my hips. And being the person I was, I was like, well, I got one functional hip, so we're just going to keep chugging along. Um, <laughs> and eventually tore cartilage in the other hip. 
And then at that point, I could barely walk from the train station to the studio because I was just in so much pain. And then that was pretty much kind of a turning point because I hadn't planned to go to college. I just wanted to dance professionally right out of high school. I'd been offered a full ride to IU, so that was pretty much a no-brainer, and decided to get my degree because with these injuries, um, cartilage tears are pretty much permanent. You can... I did a lot of physical therapy for it, basically didn't dance for six weeks, and just did PT pretty much nonstop to try and get back to where I was. But because of, yeah, the nature of those injuries, you don't get a lot of blood flow to your cartilage. Your performance is limited for effectively the rest of your life. Did you realize that you had a problem or did somebody tell you you had a problem with regard to an eating disorder? A couple people reached out to me, but I was so deep in it that it was, yeah, it really was like in my mind, it was so black and white. And I I pushed friends away, pushed family away. I was just also grumpy all the time because of just a calorie deficit. I was always in a bad mood. But yeah, it was dancing professionally was all I wanted. And I would have stopped at nothing to get there. But honestly, it's kind of lucky that I got those injuries because that was a little bit of a wake-up call. And I decided to go to college. But then the stress of like freshman year made it worse. And yeah, that was probably my low point was freshman year of college because, again, a lot of things fell out of my control. So I resorted to controlling what I could. But sophomore year, I found bikes. (laughs) And that that was like my saving grace. In the simplest terms, being able to measure things beyond just my calorie intake and my body weight was like a giant weight off my shoulders because I was able to, yeah, it wasn't subjective anymore. It wasn't other people telling me what my worth is and other people deciding whether or not I could succeed in a career. It was, it was empowering because if I trained right and started eating right, then the progress was going to happen in and of itself. It wasn't It wasn't other people controlling my value, if that makes sense. Did there come a point in time when food became a friend as opposed to this thing that you were trying to control as you got more into the bikes? Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely. I think I realized that the healthier I ate, So in other words, giving my body the calories that it needed, the faster I could go on the bike, the longer I could ride, and the stronger I felt. And it was no longer like this resentment towards food. For a long time, I just hated food. Like I hated that I had to eat it. And all I wanted was (laughs) for the human body to evolve to like not need food. And that was that was like my dream. But then I realized like food literally is fuel and riding bikes made me realize that. And I was like, well, if I actually eat right, then then I can do so much more. And my body isn't my enemy. My body is like so impressive that it can do these things and it can ride 100 miles or even 50 or whatever. It doesn't even matter. Just the fact that it can create its own momentum and go up hills and downhills and through corners and stuff is pretty amazing. And I think 
I started, yeah, to see food and my own body as well as more of a friend than something to resent. This is interesting because you got into cycling and it helped you overcome or deal with issues associated with an eating disorder. But a lot of people who have eating disorders who are a part of the sport, being a part of the sport makes it worse. And so I'm confident that, you know, well, let's start with this. These issues that you dealt with, eating disorder and freshman and sophomore year of college, those aren't really far distant memories for you. You're 24 now or 23 now, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, I graduated, um, it'll be almost two years. So like a year and change. Um, so it is definitely still not very far removed. And I mean, ultimately having an eating disorder is a lifelong battle. There are definitely times where there's like a little surge and I am tempted to fall back into those patterns. But I think recognizing the, I don't, I don't know how to, because it's not a feeling or maybe it is a feeling, but recognizing those feelings or the associated emotions and having healthy coping mechanisms for them has helped a lot. I was surprised, honestly, to see how many eating disorders are prevalent in the cycling world. Um, but I guess it it makes sense because of the the holy grail of watt per kilo. And a lot of people focus on the kilo side of that rather than the watt side of it. Well, I mean, as somebody who has had an eating disorder and as somebody who has struggled with, you know, that lack of control and and the the issues, emotional, mental, physical that come with it, you can recognize that in other people. You can see when somebody else is going through it. Definitely. So when you see teammates, friends, and this is definitely not a male-female problem. This is a human problem. 100%, yeah. And I think it's something that we as cyclists reward ourselves for being super skinny. I mean, it's ridiculous that one of the things that we all say to each other, and I catch myself doing this too, somebody will come up to you and be like, oh man, you're looking skinny. And your initial response as a bike racer is, oh, I'm totally fat. And it's nonsense. I mean, like, I I weigh 75 kilos or 76 kilos. Cool. Wonderful. That's a great thing. Does it matter if I can get down to 74.5 or 73? No, it really doesn't. It really doesn't, especially for the type of bike racing that you and I love to do, which is right. crit racing. Watts per kilo is not a really relevant factor for most crits. Right. And I have gone way far, far away from the actual question that I was initially planning on asking here. So I'm going to loop all the way back after getting on my soapbox and ask you about when you do see somebody friend, teammate, somebody who's a part of the Peloton, whatever it happens to be, who you recognize these problems, you recognize the demons that they are facing. Have you ever intervened? Have you ever acted? Have you ever said, I'm a friend here. I'm somebody who knows what you're going through. Has that ever been something that you've brought yourself to do? Oh, 100%. Because I think just knowing that you aren't alone is a massive first step to 
I guess, becoming becoming better and healthy. And ultimately, all I can do as someone observing is offer my support. Um, and then it's up to the person who's suffering to either accept it or turn me away. But I know when I was in deep in my um in those times, I mostly turned people away because I didn't want to hear it and I didn't want to admit that I had a problem. And I was just so deep in it that anyone who pointed it out or tried to pull me out, I just shoved them nice and far away. <laughs> but ultimately, I think dialogue is a big part of it. And it is those little comments like, oh, you're looking really lean, you're looking really skinny, and the positive associations that can escalate a situation. And also not just other people saying things like that, but having those those same thoughts like in your own mind, changing how you talk to yourself um, and changing just, yeah, your inner dialogue and also the way you communicate with other people, I think is probably the most effective way to combat those issues. Talk about persistence, because I think that this is a really important conversation to have right now, because it's it's across the board. It is not just eating disorders. It's depression, anxiety. You know, it's a lot of things that we see happening right now about people withdrawing from society because of the pandemic. We're encouraged to socially distance. You know, we're encouraged to stay by ourselves. We're encouraged to be alone. And when something internally is we're battling with mental health-wise, we do reflexively turn people away. And we say, no, I don't want to talk to you, or I don't want to talk about this, or whatever it happens to be. But the key thing of being an ally and being a friend is that persistence, just coming back to the person again and again and again in a positive, constructive way, and making sure that they know that you're there. Making sure that they know that they can turn to you. They don't have to open up on that particular day. But how many people do you think you ended up turning away before you accepted the help? Oh, probably dozens. And it wasn't anything personal. It was just that I was so self-involved with my own little world that, yeah, it just took took so many people. And I honestly think my boyfriend, Connor, not like to be biased or anything, but he was probably the most helpful out of anyone because it was persistent and it wasn't, he never flat out told me I need to change. He just showed us support day in, day out, and he wasn't enabling either. So if I was, I don't know, having a, a breakdown over something, he wouldn't sugarcoat it or pretend that everything was fine. Like He'd be pretty blunt about whatever was going on but then do that in a way that was constructive and showed support rather than either enabling, sugarcoating, or yeah, saying <laughs> saying the wrong thing isn't escalating anything. And I think that that came eventually became a two way street where I would say something like, "Hey, when you say this, it makes it worse because dot dot dot," or like, "Hey, when you say this, it helps um, because dot dot dot." And we eventually were able to 
figure out what worked and ended up helping a lot. So we're going to segue away from talking about what we have been talking about to talking about things that are a little bit more, uh, have a little bit more levity to them. So let's have a completely weird segue. Connor is a goner. Yeah. (laughs) Where the heck does that Instagram handle come from? Because people want to know, why is Connor a goner? (laughs) Uh, Real quick, before we get to that, um, can I just say one more thing about, um, I guess if anyone is listening to this and currently struggling with an eating disorder or any other form of mental health issues, um, back to like your point about persistence, it's not going to change overnight once you realize what you're going through. It can be years or even decades, but that's all it comes down to is just like every single day trying to improve a little bit and not expecting it to be like flipping a coin or flipping a switch. It's unfortunately, you're not going to wake up feeling perfect one day and it's a process and that process is not a straight road but it's worth it's worth fighting for it. Okay, Connor is a goner. Yeah. Um I actually don't know what Connor is a goner came from. <laughs> he is sitting right next to me so I could ask him <laughs> if you want. Go right ahead cuz I mean like this is the only question that I've got is why? Why is he a goner? Like that's the question that I get from people when I tell them that I'm about to interview you. So like put Connor on. <laughs> I, I asked some context. Um, I was born dead, Apgar like zero, which is the scale for how alive is the baby. And uh, I had a lot of uh, really debilitating uh, health issues growing up, uh, a lot of uh, like lung disease. And I was like premature and really tiny. Like in my senior year of high school, I think I was like 5'2 and 90 pounds. Um, so I just had a, a rough time there. And um, I think eventually I realized um, that every day that I can, you know, breathe the <laughs> nice clean air and hang out uh, under uh, whatever sky is out today and um, just enjoy the people around me and and live my life as a, as a blessing. I'm not really meant to be here anyways. I should have died probably, you know, been born 100 years earlier. The technology to keep me alive probably wasn't around. So, uh, yeah, you know, we're all we're all just here for a little while, but let's let's live it. You guys are made for each other. (laughs) (laughs) I like to think so. Thank you, Connor, for for providing that bit of context for us. Thank you. Cool. All right, I'll give you back. Thank you. So now that we've covered the very critical issue of of the Instagram handle, the Little 500. Yes. (laughs) This is an institution at Indiana University at IU where you were a student. Oh, yeah. And I think it's it's most appropriately made famous by Cutters, by by that movie Breaking Away. Thank you for reminding myself. You got into bike racing. You fell in love with bike racing because of Indiana and the Little 500. Why was this your gateway? Yeah, well, so I was just in a gender studies class and I'd heard of the Little Five um, my freshman year because my teachers warned us. They were like, Little Five, like this is your freshman year. You might not know about it. It's like just basically a week long insane party. Um, And so we were warned to just like have a buddy, keep it safe, et cetera, et cetera. 
And so that was my introduction to it. And then so sophomore year, I'm in this gender studies class and this girl, Haley, she starts talking about how she's training for the little 500. I was like, tell me more about that. Like, because all I have right now, as far as information regarding little five was that it's scary and we should be scared as students and have a buddy and keep it safe. So I was like, what is, tell me more about it. Like, I'm pretty curious from someone else's perspective. And so she told me about it and how it's basically any student can race it, whether you're in a sorority or you're just like regular Joe on campus. There's all variety of teams, like the Sweet Potato Club had a team. Yeah, anyone can do it. And so I was like, sign me up. (laughs) And so I race or uh, I uh I went on a ride with her that weekend and joined her team and then kind of trained a little bit through the fall and uh <laughs> my parents don't know this but I'd skip class to go on bike rides <laughs> um and we we all do that my 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 dad is never going to hear this but dad I skipped class a lot <laughs> to go bike ride <laughs> Yeah, I mean, when it's a perfect day out, how could you sit in a classroom? Um, But yeah, then that was my first bike race was the little 500. And just the amount of adrenaline and just how insane it was, I fell completely in love. And I think that was kind of why I became addicted to crits as well as just that level of adrenaline and feeling everything and nothing all at once. It's pretty unmatched. Don't think I've ever felt that anywhere else except for in a bike race. (laughs) One thing that does jump out about the Little 500, your involvement with it, your involvement subsequent to, you know, first racing it and, and the, the woman you are now is this thread of, of equality and advocacy. Mm -hmm. Um, You push for equality in the Little 500 at Indiana you are continuing to do it now. You you have this ultimate life goal of racing a race that doesn't even exist right now, but that should in the in the women's Tour de France. Why is this such a passionate issue for you as a bike racer, as a human? Yeah. So tell you a little bit about the the effort regarding the little five. The women's race is only a hundred laps. And the men's race is 200 laps. And that's a pretty stark difference. And to me, that just, I found it offensive because what that is basically saying in the most blunt of terms is that women are only capable of racing half the distance as men. Yeah, that's just a slap in the face. At first, I was like, maybe it's just little five, but it's just about every race and sometimes the differences are even more stark and now that i'm a cat too sometimes i see that the cat two women's races are the same length as the men's four five and that also is a bit of a slap in the face not to bash the men's four fives but to race at the level of say a cat one two woman you just have to train so much more than an entry-level men's rider And to say that we're racing the same course in the same distance is just, it's a bit rude. And I think if you look at women's bike racers, a lot of the opportunities are smaller. And so women are 
forced to also be working multiple jobs while pursuing a professional level career in cycling. And then to not be presented with at least the same amount of racing time just seems wrong to me. You in San Marcos, Texas, by yourself, you're not going to be able to fix this particular issue at the UCI level. So when you look at the women's tour uh, of Flanders or the women's lack of Paris-Roubaix, those issues are not issues that you're going to be able to fix by yourself. But you definitely can be, and I believe that you are, advocating on a more local, national level here in the United States. What are the things that you are trying to do here in our country to lead by example? I think that any time I see a race that advertises equal payout and equal racing time, not necessarily racing distance, I make a point to be there. And I will share it with all my friends and tell them like, hey, we should go up and support this because they're doing exactly what we want. Anytime I see a race, I'm so tempted to say the race I'm thinking of right now. But anytime I see a race where they're, they clearly don't care about the women's field, I'm not showing up. I'm not giving that race promoter my money. Um, and I think that's really what it comes down to is let your money talk and let your social media presence talk because I'll show up to a race that's completely out of the way if they advertise equal payout and equal racing opportunities. And I'll share it far and wide with anyone who would be interested in going. Let's talk about Wolfpack, about your crit racing team. The women who are a part of this team, and now it's expanded because you've got Kristen Arnold and also Julie Kalitza joining the squad for 2021. I absolutely adore your team because uh, I don't know how you keep the socks so pristine white with the kit. I mean, like, do you have 5,000 pairs or something <laughs> like that? But this team has such a culture. It has such a feeling to it. It ha- it's 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 a sisterhood, but with women who aren't necessarily right next to each other. I mean, you used to have Paige Kostanecki on the team, and even though she wasn't on the team anymore, you still visit with her and ride with her. You know, there's clearly a lot of I care about you on this team that is not necessarily present on all the other teams in all other professional sports, which kind of may have a mercenary-like feel. Yeah. And I think a lot of that comes down to our team manager, Kelly. And she she's just there's no one like her because first and foremost, we're human beings. And then second, we're bike racers. And anything like, for example, racing during unsafe times, such as the pandemic, she would never put that on us. She would take the fall for it and be like, hey, we're just not doing it. And whether that reflects badly on her or the team, she doesn't care as long as whatever is happening is for the benefit of the riders on the team. And I, yeah, I really greatly just appreciate her for that. But she's also given you personally an opportunity that you might not have gotten from other teams. I mean, you were a relatively inexperienced rider when you first became a part of Wolfpack. I mean, you only started racing four years ago, sort of thing. So, 
Right. You know, how much do you owe to her for taking that shot on somebody who was unproven? Oh, everything. I I owe her everything. Um, Because, yeah, when I first reached out to her, the only real results that said anything about me were my Intelligentsia 2-3 race results. And that was like one series, so not really much to back me up. And she was like willing to give me a chance and a lot of other teams rejected me but she she saw something and yeah for that I'm very grateful and that's just the kind of person she is like she'll choose someone who she thinks has potential and just give them a chance because to her she's not losing anything by it she's giving someone an opportunity and that's yeah that's just who she is now you kind of flew by something there that there actually really is a standalone category two, three women's race at Intelligentsia. They have their own start, their own entire time on the course. How critical do you think it is that women have this opportunity at a nine day long crit series? I think it's an, it's incredible. And that's one of the reasons I went because a lot of women's fields are just crammed together. So you'll have p12 and then you'll have three four five so trying to go from (laughs) jumping from the three four fives field to racing with pro women is insane like it's just such a massive jump so having a two three field where you can kind of dabble with that higher level without being just completely obliterated by the pros is it's fundamental to developing as a rider and there are very few races that have a 2-3 field for women. You're the first guest that we've had on from Wolfpack. Tell us who, what, when, where, and why is Wolfpack? I would say mostly it, it comes down to Kelly, our team manager, but we wouldn't be able to do what we do without the support that we've had from Shimano and Jackaroo. So we're all very grateful to their continued support. But when you're not doing the crit racing, you're racing with State. Who are they? That's right. Yeah. Um, State is a gravel racing team. And it's basically just a small, rowdy group of people. And we really just like to go hard and um, have fun while we're at it. Pretty cool thing about State is they um, they just came out with a new all-road gravel frame that I'm pretty stoked to try out this year. One thing that State, the, the gravel team, is known for is its relationship with a, a CBD provider. Can you tell us anything about that? Yeah, so we've been really lucky to have a partnership with Hello Blue CBD because I think especially for gravel racing, you're recovery has to be at an elevated level and having CBD in the recovery arsenal is um, pretty effective. (laughs) So let's, let's start wrapping up here and and ending on a, on a different note. One of the things that you, you're passionate about that is not crit racing related, but that is bike racing or bike experience related is gravel. You've you, your your website has this great picture of you at DK on the couch, that, that famous scene. So gravel is obviously something that you've come to, to enjoy and do and engage in. Where do you see 
gravel going for you and for our community as a whole over the next, say, five years? I definitely see gravel growing a lot in the next five years. It's already growing at an insane rate, but I think gravel is a little bit more wholesome than road racing. Um, and the concept that anyone can do it is pretty awesome. I've heard some people describe it as like the mullet of bike racing because it's um, business in the front, party in the back. And I think that's kind of fun for everyone because you can be like a world tour pro racing at the front. But if you blow up and have a bad day, you can still meet incredible people and just kind of have fun. Someone will probably offer you tequila and then you can just mail it in and finish the day and have accomplished things even without standing on a podium. People offer you tequila and crits too. If you've spent any time <laughs> at Tulsa, you will get offered tequila there. So, Gravel is probably the most revealing discipline of all the cycling disciplines. Because who you are two hours in is a world of different to who you are eight hours in. And I think you learn a lot about yourself during those ups and downs. And you also learn about a lot about the people around you, not just how far you can push yourself, but beyond the point where you, you can even think you're just you're just completely depleted, out of food and water. The finish is still like 15 miles away. In those times, you learn you just learn a lot about yourself. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's all there is to it really is just you yeah, it's it's almost spiritual cuz you just that's really what it is. You just really figure out at your core who you are as a person. <laughs> well, Celine, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh we will of course be following you throughout the entirety of 2021. Hopefully, we get some good racing in and uh we'll get you back on here as soon as possible. Thanks so much. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to another episode of the show. Today's episode was written, produced, and edited by me, Rob Kelly. We are a proud member of the Wide Angle Podium Network of Shows. For more on that network, head on over to WideAnglePodium.com. Don't forget to check out this show's website, CriteriumNation.com, for extras and photos and a full archive of everything that we've done over the past two years. We've got one more week left, and the future is all right. Our initial effort this year on highlighting the young riders in the crit scene and American road scene. So please come on back next week for more stories from our Criterium Nation. Criterium Nation.